we are starting a, a new kind of two-part series. It's a kind of a, you know, whatever to call it a series, so it's only two parts. But um, we're starting a two-part series, and it's really great if it's your first time here or if you're relatively new to our church because we're going to spend the next two weeks talking about basically the focus of our church and consequently the focus of each of us as individuals. And to get us going all in the same direction, I want to tell you a brief story um, about me and uh, when I was in college and, and, and just to kind of get us going in the same direction towards focus. So when I was in college, um, many of you uh, don't know this, but I was a terrible student, like atrociously bad as, a, as someone who would go to class and I would just kind of, in hindsight, it doesn't really make sense because I would go to class and I'd be there the entire time, but I wouldn't pay attention. It's like, well, why did you go? What's the point then? Nonetheless, um, I was never a good student when I was in school, and I knew that about myself. And I would be willing to go the extra mile to pretend like I was a good student than to actually be a good student. Some of you who aren't good students know what I'm talking about, right? You spend more time trying to act like you're paying attention than you're actually, it would take more energy to act like you're paying attention than it actually does to pay attention. Um, so I was in my, uh, I think, third or fourth semester at Tallahassee Community College because, you know, that's where the eagles fly. Um, and I was going into uh, what would become the bane of my existence, which all of you who are in this boat know my struggle, uh, which was Spanish class. Anybody have, like, Spanish class struggles? Okay, let me just, yeah, thanks for raising your hand. I appreciate you validating me. And now let me ask you this. Anybody else think like I probably am going to graduate college without even thinking about it except for Spanish class? Anybody in that boat? Okay, don't admit it. That was me. I was in TCC and I had to go do some stuff later on at Florida State. Um, but when I was in t- Spanish class at TCC, um, I didn't like it and, in fact, just didn't like school in general. And so my thought was, I'm going to um, be really smart about this. And I'm not going to say, if I have to go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, there's no way I'm making it Monday, Wednesday, Friday. In fact, I'm probably not making it Monday, Wednesday. In fact, I may not even make it on Monday. So I'm just going to go to like a Tuesday or a Thursday, all, you know, three-hour class at one time and just bear down on some Como Sayama, okay? So... First day of class, many of you know, attendance is mandatory, right? And so I was thinking, okay, I'm not a good student, but I want to set myself in a good direction. Um, And so I am going to do everything I can to make a good impression on my teacher. Now, that might sound kind of weird saying, what can I do to make a good impression on my teacher? But my thought was, okay, I want her, whether I'm actually smart or not, I want her to think I'm smart. So here's what I'm going to do. First day of class, I'm going to wear glasses, because everybody knows people who wear glasses are, you're, you're so, you know, stereotypical. Anyway, now, granted, this was before glasses were cool, because if you did that now, you'd just be a hipster, right? But back then, no one wore glasses except people who needed to wear glasses. It was not cool. People didn't just say like, oh, yeah, I got these, but I got them at Urban Outfitters. They really don't have a prescription, but I'm just trying to look trendy. No one did that. This was like no one wore glasses because glasses were, glasses people, nerdy, okay? They're not anymore, so you're, you're cool. Now, went to class, and, and, and <laughs> those of you who know me, typical, um, walk into class, walk into class about 10 minutes late, but I'm like, dude, 10 minutes late for a three-hour class, if we're talking about a percentage of time missed, that's only like being like a minute or two late. So I feel like I'm in on, on, on relatively good time here. Um, walk into class, and the first day is not syllabus day when it's only a three-hour class. The first day you actually get into some work, 
And apparently you were supposed to have your book when you showed up for the first day of class. I, I didn't have my book for the first two months of class. But nonetheless, um, I walk into class and they're already sitting down talking about stuff. I'm like, dude, we're 10 minutes in and we're doing some Spanish right now. Okay, different mindset than what I had walking in. So go in, sit down, um, don't have my book with me. The teacher says, you know, why don't you scoot up next to somebody who has a book if you don't have a book. So I scoot up next to this girl who has a book. And as we're sitting there talking, the teacher poses a question. Now, this is how you know people stereotype. I'm just going to say this. Because the teacher asked a question. And she said, you know, I don't know. I would say some more Spanish, but como se llama is about as far as I get. And she asked a question. And no lie, nobody in the class really answered. This girl looks at me, and she goes, why don't you answer it? And I'm just like, why? She goes, you look smart. I'm like, you are so racist, you know? (laughs) Just kidding. But I was like, you know, <laughs> well, thank you, I am, but, you know, I just want to give everybody else in the class, you know, I want to be equitable as a, as a student. Um, <laughs> but here's where the story's going. Um, as we're going to leave the class, my row was right here. It was the row closest to the door. The door was right here. And as you know, um, once you've been in class for about three hours, there is nowhere on God's green earth that you would rather be. You would rather be anywhere else than in that class. And some of you know this struggle where you're trying to leave class, but there's like three friends that are blocking the aisle, and they just don't know and don't care that they're blocking the aisle. And so I'm just, I am got my stuff ready to go, and they're standing right there. And I'm thinking, well, I'm a nice guy. So instead of just like saying, hey, you guys, you know, get out of the way, get over yourself, I decide I'm going to go and I'm going to go over the chair to the door. And they're the old school chairs. And I guess chairs probably still have this, but they have a little metal thing that goes around. Now, I stand up on my chair because that's what you do in class. um, And I go to step over. Now, pause. (laughs) I don't actually wear glasses, okay? They didn't have glasses that were non-prescription. I just went to Walmart and got the most astutious-looking, lowest-grade glasses in terms of lenses that I could possibly find because I didn't want to mess up my eyes because I don't think that's a real thing. But I digress. Stand up on the chair, go to step down, and if you've ever done this before, if you're not a glasses wearer but you wear glasses, you know there's a little bit of a difference between what you see and what's actually there. The ground looks a little bit closer than the ground actually is because it's a little bit magnified. And so I go to step, and I go to step over, and and many of you know the struggle. Like, there's that moment of panic where you realize, that ain't the ground, you know? And so instinctively, you do the worst thing that you could possibly do, you kick. You know what I mean? Like, like I know what I'm going to do. There's no ground where I think there's ground. Just let me move my leg out of the way just in case I want to face plant. Um, Now... (laughs) I step over this thing. There's people that are walking towards the door. I start to kick my leg back. Thankfully, I wasn't that far off, but just a little bit off. And my leg catches. Now, just so you know, um, for those of you thinking, oh, my gosh, he's about to eat it. There's a wall in front of me. Um, But your boy's athletic, okay? So I step. I kind of catch myself, and I spring into the wall. You know, you kind of put your arms like you're about to, like, die. And then, you know, I kind of do some push-ups, you know, I'm like, I just got to get the blood flowing, you know, it just, everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's so cool, and I walk out the door. No, everybody's like, this, this goober just did that, but here, 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 here's why I say that. A little bit of a shift of focus, a little bit of a shift of focus can make a huge difference as it relates to focus and optimal outcomes. In other words, The outcome that you're trying to go for, if we aren't continually focused and have the right direction, if we're not continually focused and going in the right place, then a little bit of shift can cause a very, very different outcome than intended. If you've ever been in the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts, you know this if you've gone camping. If you're a degree off, 
10 steps down the road doesn't make a lot of difference. 10 miles down the road makes a huge difference. 100 miles down the road makes a gigantic difference. The longer that you go, and this is frankly true church life, personal life, organizational life, anything like that. The longer you go with a slight variation, the bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger the separation between what you originally intended and where you're actually going to end up. And so what we realize as a church is that we get bigger. There are a lot of us that come from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of you were raised in very traditional church backgrounds. Some of you guys were raised in very non-traditional church backgrounds. Some of you guys were raised in very, you know, uh, actually no church background at all. For some of us, we were raised in different religions, different thoughts. Kind of figure it out for yourself. But we have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds And as we come together as a church, we have to continually make sure our focus is on the mission and the vision and what that means for our church. Because we all have a tendency to interpret, to internalize, and slightly shift the focus for ourselves, for our lives, and as a cumulative effect, our church. So let me tell you what the focus is that we're shifting to make sure it's on, and then we'll go throughout the rest of the sermon and you kind of get where I'm going with this. I think the place, or one of the places, that we have the greatest tendency to need to refocus because there is a subtle degree shift is this. We think the mission of the church is for the institution of the church and not the individuals who make up the church. We think, and if you've been around here for a long time, you you, you know this, that the mission or vision of our church is to love God Make disciples and be great neighbors. Love God, make disciples, and be great neighbors. And what we can do unintentionally is say, I'm a part of an institution, I'm a part of a church, I'm a part of a community that embodies that, but I don't individually embody that. And the problem is we are cumulatively the entirety of the church. In other words, each individual makes a cumulative idea of what church is. Now, let me tell you why I think, and I'm going to spend most of the rest of the time telling you why I think as individuals, this is just extraordinarily important for us to embody. So when we first started as a church, how we got this love idea, love idea, love God, make disciples, be great neighbors idea, was pretty simple. I had always experienced churches that did one or two of these three things really well. They either did a great job of loving God, they did a great job of loving God and introducing people to God. They had great evangelism. This was the wide church, right? This was the church that, I mean, they just brought people in and brought people in and brought people in and people were coming to know Jesus and people were coming to know Jesus and people were coming to know Jesus. And then about six six months later, eight months later, they said, you know, gosh, is there anything else to this? Because there was a separate group of churches that did a wonderful job of discipleship. They did a fantastic job of taking folks and connecting them in relationships with one another. They did a fantastic job of taking people and making sure that they were growing in their faith, connecting them in community groups. They had depth. They didn't have a lot of growth. Didn't have a new new person walk into the door for the last six to eight months. But they were deep. And then you'd experience some really cool churches. That they had a little bit of this and they had a little bit of that. But they had such a great and incredible heart for the community around them. They were the missions church. They were a church 
that just did an exceptional job of invading and being involved in the community. That they didn't go and say, we know what we're doing, we know better than you, that we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to help you in the other But they were just genuinely a part and had a heart to love and serve the community around us, around them, regardless of who that community was. And so our thought was this. What if we were the perfect balance or the perfect blend of all three? What if there was a church that actually reached people Because we believe that the good news of Jesus is good news. We believe that the good news of Jesus is that you and I are separated from God because of our sinfulness. And to be honest, we needed help to be reconciled or made right with God. And so God did something extraordinary in sending his son Jesus to the world to die on the cross. Not just to die but to take the sin, take the shame, take the guilt of that I should have faced, the judgment, the condemnation that I should have faced and died on the cross. And that's good news, that there's ultimate forgiveness and love and grace and acceptance, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. What if a church actually did that? In fact, this, this, this would be crazy. What if a church did such a good job of presenting the gospel on a Sunday morning and helping people to ignite their love for God on Sunday morning and sending them out to tell people about Jesus, to be excited actually about Jesus, not to be this, feel this sense of you know, this obligatory evangelism that we sometimes feel as Christians, but we were actually excited. What if you were excited to invite somebody to church? In fact, let me, let me just tell you my dream or one of my dreams. What if people actually looked forward to church? There's a watershed moment that happened a while back in my life. I went to this, I went to, I'd gone to churches my whole life and, you know, frankly, never really been too blown away or too impressed by any church. And I went to one. Music was good, you know, it was pretty engaging. And the guy got up there and he talked for a while and everything that he said mattered. He didn't just, he wasn't just repetitive for the sake of being repetitive and for the sake of filling time. But when he got done and they prayed and they dismissed, I legitimately thought, I wish that would have lasted longer. What if there was a church that when you invited your friend to or that when you went to, you actually thought it was so good and so beneficial, you wished it lasted longer? And then what if there was a church that as they did that, as they engaged the community, as they engaged the world, as they engaged the people, actually sifted into discipleship relationships? And as they sifted into discipleship relationships, there was growth that happened. There was depth that happened. There was maturation that happened. And what if central to the heart of the entire church was a love, a genuine love for the community? And what if there was a perfect balance and blend of all three of those at the same time? So here is, to me, what is the difference in what we were thinking and the shift to make as individuals. If you got your Bible, you can open up to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1, actually. If you're not familiar with the Bible, by the way, John is a guy who uh, was a follower of Jesus. He's a really close follower of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that he was in the beginning with God. <laughs> so he gets a little repetitive in that statement. But here, here, here's what he's saying. If, if you're not you know, too terribly familiar with church, then this is perhaps new information to you. 
When he said, in the beginning was the word, he's using the word, word, to describe Jesus, which seems unnecessary, if we're being honest, okay? But here's why he did that. The word, word, the actual Greek word for the word, word, I'm going to use that word as many times as I possibly can, by the way, was a word called logos. And logos had dual um, application. It had dual pull and draw from it. There was the Greek philosophers, there was all the Greek folks, and then there was all the Jewish folks. And the Greek people, um, the, the word logos was basically God. It was this kind of metaphysical eos. It was this kind of sense of the universe. And, you know, if you were, um, you know, under 25, this is like if you, like, wrapped up thoughts and prayers, good vibes, and the universe all in one, Okay. That's kind of the Greek understanding of what the Logos was. On the other side of it, the entire Jewish community was going through this interesting shift where they went from temple worship to scriptural study, and in that, they had such a large focus on the word of God that they would oftentimes attribute it as God. And so he pulls from both of these cultures and says, in the beginning was Jesus And Jesus was with God, and interestingly, Jesus was God. And he was, by the way, again, verse 2, with God, in case you missed that one. In verse 14, he tells us, this is the application of that. In the word, verse 14, became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as the one and only Son from the Father. In other words, he says this. That there was the Word, the Word became flesh. God, the Logos. God, the universe. God, the, you know, Word. God became flesh. He did not consider it good enough to sit there in Godhood, in Godness, and just say, hey, good for you guys. He actually became flesh. And the crazy part is God dwelt among us. You know that, was it, Alanis Morissette song that's going to date me for a second, but she says, you know, what if God was one of us, just a stranger on the bus? Well, he was, okay? He wasn't on the bus, so they didn't have buses, but what if a stranger on the fishing boat that she was a part of, where all the rednecks said, that's right, you know, probably, probably going for redfish. Anyway, so Jesus was the word, Jesus was God, and God came down and dwelt among us. And what was interesting about God, when he dwelt among the people, is he dwelt among the people that no one thought he would dwell among. The less religious they were, the more he dwelt with. The less religious they were, the more he dwelt with. In fact, the less religious they were, the more they liked him. It wasn't just that he was imposing. They actually enjoyed, appreciated, invited and wanted to spend time with Jesus. Word became flesh, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. In other words, we have seen the glory of Jesus. We have seen the glory of God. Glory as the only father, as of the only son from the father. And he says this part, full of grace and truth. Now, this is a huge idea. Because when we hear that, it honestly doesn't really jump off the page to us. But as he says that, he says, there's the, the God, the Logos, the Jesus, was full. He was the fullness of both grace and both truth. Now, 
Those are things that we oftentimes don't see you can be full of. We oftentimes see that you're either one or the other or you are balancing the tension of, managing the the in-between of. In other words, um, either you're a grace person or you're a truth person. Either you are like the nicest person in the world and you are so, you're just, you know, kind and giving and you bend towards everybody and, you know, someone could kill your cat and you're like, who cares? Which, it's a cat, so who does care, you know? More importantly, you know, somebody could kill your dog and you'd be like, oh, but, you know, God loves them, God forgives them, how could I not forgive them? And all the truth people are like, dude, he killed your dog, like punch him in the face, you know? You're the truth people, it's black and white, um, frankly, people don't really like you that much, okay, but they, they, they put up with you, they're around the water cooler because you're... you're, you're you balance us out a little bit. So, you know, there's the, there's the truth people and there's the grace people. There's the grace people and the truth people. And for some of us, there's a blend between the two. You, you try to be truthful. You try to be graceful. You try to kind of have a blend of those two. Now, here's what Jesus was saying. Or here's what John was saying about Jesus. He was not the balance of the two. He was the fullness of the two. In other words, there are times when we can think of balance when there is no balance to be had. Because balance only applies when it is in connection with the other, when it is in opposition of the other, when it balances each other out on a scale. He says, no, no, no. You can have the fullness of both, and then actually in the fullness of both, if there was a balance, they will be perfectly balanced. That he was the fullness of both grace, and he was the fullness of truth. Somehow, read the Bible for yourself, you'll read this. Somebody would ask Jesus a question, and he would be so gracious and kind and patient. And sometimes he would be so incredibly truthful, it would run people off. He was the fullness of both, where we see balance. He was the manifestation in their entirety. Here's why that's important. What I've found is that for us as a church, we can want to balance loving God. We can want to balance inviting people in. We can want to balance going out and telling people about Jesus. We can want to balance that with discipleship. Let's not put too much organizational emphasis on that. Let's not put too much personal emphasis on that because we also need to be in discipleship relationships. And oh, by the way, let's not forget to be involved in the communities of the marginalized at the same time. Here's, here's what he's saying. With Jesus, it is possible to be the fullness of all three concurrently. It is possible to be the fullness of all three of those at the same time. In other words, instead of trying to balance, we can be aggressive. Instead of trying to balance, say, okay, we don't want to lean too far in that direction, we don't want to lean too far in that direction, we can aggressively pursue all three of those at the same time. And I feel like for the future of our church, I think this year, God has... God has works in store for our church. God has movements in store for our church. God has growth in store for our church in extraordinary ways. But let me tell you the tendency that's going to have to, that the tendency that we have, that we're going to have to be aware of, have the organizational and the personal self-awareness of. We can rely on the institution to be the fullness and not own that I as an individual need the fullness of all three in my life. That I know as a church, we're supposed to love God. I know as a church, I'm supposed to be daily connected to him. I'm supposed to be helping other people come to know him. 
But right, I mean, come on, the longer you've been a Christian, isn't this true? In fact, I would love to make a chart for everybody in here who's like an economics or finance major with an X and Y axis that basically says the longer you've been a Christian, the less people you know that aren't Christians. The longer you've been a Christian, the less influence you have with people who aren't Christians. But we have people who are inviting people. And here's the other part of it. Oftentimes, the less Christian friends that you have, the less discipleship that you have. We see them as opposed to one another. Just come on. What if you had, personally, a love for God that was contagious? What if you had, personally, a passion for God that was contagious? What if every single day you woke up and the mission of your life, the mission of my life, was to help people to come to know Jesus? And this isn't just like an yeah, invite people to church. It has nothing to do with that. You are welcome to use us as a tool for your evangelism. For your helping people to know the good news of Jesus. But what if as a church? What if as individuals? We had influence, relationships, intimacy with people who didn't know Jesus. And at the same time, we're connected in community and discipleship so that we can grow deeper in our faith. And then what if at the same time all that happened? There was this kind of X factor that's a little bit different than a lot of churches. A lot of churches have a missions group. A lot of churches have a missions committee. What if at the heart of the entire church, by the entire church I mean anybody who calls DCC their home church who you have gone here more than five times. What if every single person at the heart of who they were was a drive and a love for the vulnerable and the marginalized? A heart to serve. You see, they asked Jesus in the Bible, who is your neighbor? And he went on this parable of this, the Good Samaritan. And he basically said, you know, there was one person that walked by as a religious person, another person that walked by as a religious person. There was a Samaritan, which made everybody go, oh, that helped and loved and served and made sure they got what they needed. And he said, in which one of these is the neighbor? In other words, you ask me who your neighbor is. I'm not interested in answering that question. I'm interested in knowing the answer to this. Are you a good neighbor? Are you understanding, realizing, serving, identifying the vulnerable and the marginalized in your community? What if at the heart of the church... Of every single person at the church was a heart to love and to serve the vulnerable and the marginalized regardless of who that was. And we were aggressive in that. The problem is, for many of us, we rely on an institution to be the fullness so let me ask you this. Let me give you three, three points of application and challenge. You're here, you know, if, if you're here and you've been around, you know, for longer than five times. In fact, th- this is what's great. If you're here and you haven't been around for longer than five times and maybe this is your very first time here, you're like, finally, that's why I don't like churches because they talk about this stuff all day long, but no one actually does anything. I am so with you. In fact, what's interesting, Jesus is too. It's a different sermon for a different day. But three points of challenge. Number one, 
How is your love relationship with Jesus and is that spawning into, is that turning into, is that creating in you a drive for other people to know him? And do you have influence with people who don't know Jesus? Last 15 people you texted, did they know Jesus? Last 10 people you invited over to your house for dinner, if you're young with kids, the last four people that you invited to your house for dinner, did they know Jesus? Number two, if you've been here longer than five times, are you connected in community? Are you connected in a group? Are you in discipleship? I mean, is that a part of your life that we say, love God, make disciples, and discipleship is a significant part of this? For many of us, we hear that, we know that, but we're not actually doing it. We've got, we've got about 40% of our church connected in groups, which is huge because about a year ago this time, we had about 22 to 25% connected in groups. If you've been here longer than, than five times, let me tell you, if this is your home, if you haven't decided after five times, like, you know, Crap or get off the pot. There's a, a more direct way to say that, but we're going to skip over that today. You know, decide and get connected. We need you to invest. And here's what I know. For some of you, you're saying, I'm busy and I don't need it. I'm busy and I don't need it. I'm busy and I don't need it. I get that. But perhaps if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're saying, saying you know, I don't know that I need discipleship in my life. <laughs> here's the grave mistake. Jesus did not say in Matthew chapter 28, I am going to the Father, so go therefore and be discipled. Go therefore and have everybody pour into you because all I care about is your spiritual well-being. He said, go therefore and make disciples. In fact, here's what you're going to find. In making disciples, you are in fact discipled yourself. Proverbs said it this way, he who refreshes others himself is refreshed. We're more concerned with how discipleship impacts us and how we can impact discipleship. We have got to realize this is not the job of the institution because the institution is simply the collection of individuals. It is the cumulative effect of each one of our daily lives. Let me ask this. Are you a great neighbor? Are you even a good neighbor? Do you even acknowledge the vulnerable, the needy, the weak, the marginalized, And not that they are necessarily individually weak or individually feel marginalized, but the way that perhaps culture, the way that perhaps society, the way that perhaps whatever systems are in place has created marginalization and vulnerability. Are you serving? Are you serving? Are you helping out with any of the programs? Are you doing the Project Tallahassee? We don't care if it's part of us. Like, honestly, the three things that we have groups... Uh, Sunday and serving, none of those are the summation of what that means to live it out as a Christian. That's just frankly the starting point. If I'm serving, I'm serving every single day. I'm looking for the vulnerable every single day. I'm looking for the marginalized every single day. In this, what I do here at church with the collection of believers is just an extension. A lot of times in churches, we feel like because we entered into an environment, we went to Sunday morning, we went to a group, we went and served one time, that all of a sudden that's the end. Like, that's not the finish line. That's the, that's, that's the front door to what life could and should be like. So here's my question. Is it possible that we are not being aggressive, we are not living in the fullness of all three of those things, 
not because we don't think we should, but, but, but because we think the institution should, not the individual. It's a slight shift in focus, but extraordinarily important. If we get this right, five years from now, we will be a church that people look at and say, you know what? I look forward to that church. Not necessarily I look forward to going to that church, but perhaps. Perhaps it's I look forward to being a part of the community of that church because that church lives it out individually. That collection, that group of people lives it out individually. Perhaps it's, you know what? That church, we want that church to plant a new campus in our neighborhood because we look forward to a church like that adding value to our community. Or we can be a church that relies on the institution, denies the essential nature of the individual, and as a result, communally, do some cool stuff, grow some, Disciple some, impact some, but never live into the fullness of what you as individuals and we collectively as a church have been called to be and to do. Let me tell you, I love the local church. I love our church. I am so thankful for those of you who live this out. I am so thankful for those of you who the mission of our church is not the mission of our church. This is what we see when we view the scripture as the core essentials of God. And you live that every day. I am so thankful for you. And I hope and I pray that every single one of us understands that. I hope and I pray that every one of us understands that on an individual level. And as we do, We become a church that people look forward to. We become a church that people actually look forward to. I hope that if it's your first time here, as we continue as a church, we become a church that you might say what lots of people said to Jesus. I don't necessarily believe what you believe, but for some reason, I'm drawn to you. I don't actually believe what you believe. I'm not sure if I will ever believe what you believe. But for some reason, though I am nothing like that, though I believe nothing like that, I am drawn because there's something undeniably different. I hope that if this is your big hang-up for church, that the biggest hang-up to Jesus is the church, I hope we change the way that you think about Jesus and consequently change the way you think about, change the way you think about church and consequently change the way you think about Jesus. I hope that we have a church that's so different in the personalization, in the internalization, and that is just cumulatively affected towards the institution. That you think about God differently. Because perhaps for the first time, you saw a bunch of broken, sinful people display a God who loves you so much and so deeply that it changes. And you might actually look forward to going to church even though perhaps you don't even believe what we believe. And maybe you will someday if you saw a church, a collection of individuals who lived into this and not had institutional dependency, that the cumulative effect of us as a church 
is to love God, make disciples, be great neighbors. But every single one of us lived it. So you connected in group. You spending time with God in a love relationship with him. You have influence with people who don't know Jesus. You love and serve and minister, not bashing the Bible on the throat, but just genuinely invested. And are you serving? Three simple questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we pray that there can be a shift that happens. A shift in our focus that individually we would live out the calling that you have placed on our church in our lives. That we would love you, be madly in love with you, be so passionately in love with you, Jesus, that we can't help but to help people come to know you. I pray that we would not just be discipled, but we would make disciples. That there would be depth that happens. That people connect in community with one another. And that the core of each one of us would be a heart to serve, a heart to love, a heart to pour into. The vulnerable, the marginalized, as James put it, the widow and the orphan. That we wouldn't simply be a church that talks about that. But at the heart of every single person, there would be a prioritization and an action. God, please help us to become a church who lives in the fullness of all three. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.